Chapter 16 of Dog Watches at Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dog Watches at Sea by Stanton H. King. Chapter 16 homeward bound our carpenter's mate won the capital prize in the montevideo lottery and for once this old shellback had all the money he wanted in montevideo the gambling houses conducted their nefarious business openly the roulette table and lottery were in full swing using almost every store and every policeman and soldier to aid them in their villainous trade at every corner the boys sold lottery tickets and the bumboat man supplied the ships the first liberty that was given the carpenter he remained on shore eight days and then was brought back by the shore authorities the master-at-arms coveted the money which this man had and clandestinely sold him liquor charging him an exorbitant price for every skin of liquor he obtained i heard of this fraudulent transaction and watched for an opportunity to catch our chief of police one evening i saw the master-at-arms take a skin of liquor from one of the crew of the captain's gig two other men and myself saw him pass the liquor to the carpenter's mate and receive the money pouncing upon him we took the liquor and carried it to the officer of the deck making a report against the master-at-arms he was tried by a summary court-martial and sentenced to be disrated to a landsman this was all spite on our part the master-at-arms had been hateful to us while he overlooked the petty faults of others he was ever on the alert to find some charge against us no longer chief of police or a petty officer, stripped of his brass buttons and in the same uniform as myself, we met one dark night on the forecastle head, and had it not been for the interposition of the new master-at-arms, we would have badly crippled each other. As it was, we were both unfit for duty for some days. At this stage of the cruise we had changed our captaincy. Commander George W. Pigman had taken command of our ship. Next morning we were brought before him. After looking us over, he said, You seem to have punished each other enough. I am told it's an old sore between you two men. Don't let me hear of any more trouble between you. Go forward. The ex-master-at-arms was disgraced. He felt humiliated and having asked for his discharge it was granted him on account of some disturbance regarding a lumber-laden schooner in the straits of magellan we were ordered to proceed there in the dead of winter every mess laid in a stock of sea stores pea-coats were issued to those who had none and away we sailed to the southward every day it grew colder and continued so till the coast of patagonia was sighted near the entrance to the straits we entered against a heavy current 
past Elizabeth Island, covered with numerous birds of many kinds, mostly penguins and gulls, and about a hundred miles from the Atlantic, came in sight of Punta Arenas, Sandy Point, as it is best known to English people. We dropped anchor about a mile from the shore. I do not know how the trouble regarding the schooner was settled. We remained in Sandy Point several days. We were allowed to visit the shore. A town on a beach at the foot of a hill, consisting of a fort, a church, some old government barracks, and one or two public buildings, these, with several one-story houses built so as to form streets, comprised the whole of Punta Arenas. While here, one of the large Pacific mail steamers grounded farther up the straits, and after discharging much of her cargo, it took the united efforts and steam power of another of the company's steamers and our ship to haul her from the beach. We steamed back to Montevideo, and after taking a run up the Plata, called at Rosario and Asuncion and a few minor places, we returned to our old anchorage to await the arrival of the Cursage, which was on her way to Montevideo with relief crews for the Alliance and Talapusa. One afternoon, the quartermaster reported a warship steaming into harbor. Signals were exchanged, and the news went over the fleet that the incoming vessel was the Cursage. My three years' enlistment had expired. Now I rejoiced to know that in a very few days I would be homeward bound once more. Although there was not a single person whom I felt would be glad of my return to the United States, no one to greet me there, still I felt it good to be returning to an American port which would end my enlistment. Our accounts were signed, and with bags and hammocks we were transferred to the Cursage. At the command, all hands up anchor for home, the quartermaster hoisted to the breeze our homeward-bound pennant, three hundred feet long, with a gilded ball at the end, trailing far astern. Amid the cheers of all the men on the warships in the harbor and the sweet sound of the flagship's bands playing Home Sweet Home, we bade farewell to the Spanish main. No sooner were we clear of land than the mooring chains were unbent and stowed below. The jackasses were taken from the manger, and with hawse pipes plugged, we headed for home. A few days out we sighted the uninhabited Brazilian island Trinidad. Here we had a splendid opportunity to try our hands at big gun target practice. We opened fire on the hills and plowed the soil with our shot and shell. We crossed the equator and in another week were in sight of land. As we drew near this island, we passed many flying fish boats with masts unstepped. The negro fishermen were catching fish. 
we could see the windmills on shore and everything seemed to resemble barbados meeting the first lieutenant i dared to question him is that barbados mr belknap yes king it is are we going to stop there yes only for a few days to coal up during my three years cruise my shipmates had looked forward with keen pleasure to the arrival of the mail to hear from their friends at home i had not received a word from any one in places where i had seen good women on the street the thought of my mother had come to me and i dashed it away and thought of other things as we anchored in carlisle bay i did not then allow myself to think she was gone for ever with a longing to see my father and sisters and to be in the old home once more i approached the officer of the deck and asked for liberty commander allen d brown granted me forty-eight hours on shore and told the paymaster to give me ten dollars on reaching the wharf i engaged a carriage and told the driver to hasten to payne's bay we passed the old schoolhouse and the chapel with its small burying ground at last the old home hove in sight instead of the wide open shutters and the evidence of human life blinds and doors were shut and no sign of human beings was there we drove up the gap i sprang from my carriage my heart breaking in its loneliness and wrenching the front door open i passed through the vacant front rooms and entered my mother's bedroom of all places this was the most desolate to me here in this room i had knelt with my brothers and sisters at the foot of her bed every morning and repeating with her our daily prayer we gave thanks to god now not a piece of furniture remained not a soul to welcome me home in my grief i cried mother mother where are you i think i hear the echo mocking me as it sounded where are you the natives heard that i had returned and as i reached the front door intending to make inquiries as to the whereabouts of my father one of our old negro servants threw her arms about my neck and sobbing with me cried massa harry you mammy is dead i know it sarah where is papa he's at carrington's house on the hill afflicted with blindness in his old age my father had been turned from his home while it and all he owned were sold to the highest bidder renting a small house not far from the old home his youngest daughter in barbados was doing her best to make his pension provide food and shelter for him i spent forty-eight hours in his company and when i left him it was a sad farewell we both believed it was the last time we would meet on earth it was so for he has since passed beyond all trouble and care i reported on board the cursage and in about ten days we were at hampton roads awaiting orders from washington 
word came for us to proceed to New York and there discharge the crew. There were men who had never been in the brig. In fact, they had been considered good conduct men the whole of the cruise. I was astonished when I saw them given small discharges. My question was, what will my discharge be? When Mr. Belknap handed me my parchment, he said, King, if it was in my power to change your discharge, I would do it. I don't understand how you were recommended for a continuous service certificate by the executive officer of the Alliance, but here it is, take it. Sure enough, my discharge was written on the face, entitled to an honorable discharge. I looked it over carefully. Was it possible that after three court-martials and the sentences I had served in the brig I could be so honorably discharged? On reading the conduct record, I was pleased to see. Seamanship, excellent. Gunnery, very good. Industry, excellent. Obedience, good. Cleanliness, very good. Average standing for term of enlistment, very good. Yes, I had always kept neat and clean, was implicitly obedient when in my sober mind, active and quick in movement. I gave satisfaction at my stations both aloft and on deck, and manifested an interest in every drill and exercise. Although the mark for obedience was only three, the other qualifications entitled me to twenty out of a possible twenty-five. No longer an enlisted man, I purchased a suit of clothes. With some of my shipmates, I squandered my money in New York, within three weeks appeared on the deck of the old Vermont, ready to enlist again. I passed the doctor's examination and was considered sound in body, but when the apothecary emptied a small cardboard box of wool on the table for me to put the different colors in heaps by themselves, my hopes were blasted. Although I knew it was impossible for me to do it, I made the attempt. My effort was a fearful mixture of colors. The doctor declared me color-blind and rejected me. There was one chance left. My discharge had not been tampered with, so before word of my rejection could be sent to Washington, I borrowed a few dollars of an old shipmate and started for Boston. I had hopes of bluffing the old apothecary on the Wabash again. Here I encountered the same difficulty. The box of wool was passed me to separate the skeins and place all of one color in heaps by themselves. The red, green, and brown were more than mixed, though I did my best, so for the second time I was rejected. What was I to do? I had wasted my earnings and had not a cent of my own. The only thing was to find a sailing ship and continue my days on a windjammer. Reaching the spar deck, I met Mr. Farnholt, the executive officer of the Wabash, who said, King, I have a vacancy for a landsman 
in the ship's company. Will you take it? Yes, sir, I quickly replied, glad indeed to take any rate, even though it was at the bottom round of the ladder. Very well, stay on board till I get permission from Washington to waive your color blindness. In a few days, a favorable answer was received, and as a landsman, I was enrolled on the Wabash, a special service man on that ship for the period of one year. I thereby lost the three months' pay to which my honorable discharge entitled me had I again enlisted for general service. I held my rate as landsman for six weeks, at which time the captain of the forecastle was discharged and I was given his rate. The year passed quickly, and I enlisted for another year, and was shortly after rated quarter-gunner. My duties consisted of caring for the arms and ammunition, drilling the recruits, and training them in the different exercises for sea service. Although I was not reported at any time, I deserved to be, for with others I yielded to the temptation of supplying the money big discharge men the old-timers with liquor we ran great risks to smuggle it on board that we might have money to squander in the dives outside the navy yard gate and in the north end of boston in the summer of eighteen ninety i had just passed my twenty-third birthday although so young i had lived many years of recklessness and wrongdoing my associates were of the worst kind. I did not care for anything different. Perfectly satisfied, I lived only for the day. Of the future and what it had in store for me, I cared nothing. I expected the only termination of a man-of-war man's life, a pension in old age. I had no plans or ambitions, a mere animal worse off than some animals for they at least had someone who bestowed affection on them still i was not unhappy only when my mother's face came to my mind and i allowed myself to think of her did a trace of good thought or a longing for something better enter my life at this stage of my experience a large company of young women came on board the wabash it was Sunday afternoon. Old Bob Wilkes was on liberty, and I was acting boatswain's mate in his place. In a little while the officer of the deck shouted, Boatswain's mate, pass the word. Any men who wish to attend a temperance meeting lay aft on the gun deck. The rest of the men keep silence around the decks. These good women were members of the Charlestown Young Women's Christian Temperance Union, and had asked permission to hold a meeting, thinking they might be of help to some of the men. I kept away from their company. The very sight of these women brought thoughts of my mother and my sisters. Home and fond recollections filled my mind. To banish such thoughts, I became enraged, and as I blew my whistle and passed the word the officer of the deck had given me, I whistled again and shouted, Get forward, everybody, and fill the scuttlebutt. 
It did not require all the men to do this work. Some went aft to the meeting, but I kept many of them jerking on the freshwater pump handle and did my best to forget the gathering aft. Standing forward on the gun deck by the scuttlebutt, watching that it did not overflow, I could see the gathering of people aft. Presently a sound, the sweetest of my life, reached my ears. Two young women were singing a hymn, The Gospel Bells Are Ringing. As I listened, my mind traveled back to my boyhood days when Sankey's hymns had just been introduced into Barbados. I thought of the days when, with my younger brother and sisters, we sang that very hymn at my father's side. I no longer desired to fight against the inrushing thoughts of home and loved ones, but allowed every remembrance of my mother's face and life to enter my being. At any other time, I should have dreaded the ridicule of my shipmates and given these Christian people a wide berth. Shouting to the men below, That'll do the pump, I walked aft, and seated myself on a bench in front of the singers. Safe in the arms of Jesus, they sang, and then the sweet by and by. I sobbed as though my heart would break. I was a boy, again in the presence of my mother, and seemed to be telling her of my wasted life. It was as though her voice talked to me, and reasoned with me, I decided then and there to sever myself from every evil association and to be what she would have me. Now I have finished these experiences of my bohemian life. I have confined myself to incidents on board ship and to a few happenings on shore as a sailor. The temptation to tell of other places and people has been strong, but I have refrained. My hardest task has been to discriminate between things worth relating and those that are not, but I feel, as far as my memory permits, I have set forth the truth. If no good is done, or no pleasure derived from reading the vicissitudes of a youthful sailor, cast the book away and say at its best it is only what most sailors would call a poor hard traveling purchase a rope yarn over a nail end of chapter 16 recording by peter kelleher eastport midway nova scotia end of Dog Watches at Sea by Stanton H. King.